Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is the Reverend Ben DeHart. Ben is the Associate Rector at Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. Ben grew up in Robbinsville, New Jersey, graduated from Grove City College, and received his MDiv in 2012. He's worked previously as an Episcopal Chaplain at Carnegie Mellon University, and as an associate priest at St. Thomas Memorial Episcopal Church in Oakmont, Pennsylvania. I give you Ben DeHart. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. It's Finally. A, it's a pleasure. I know. I've, I've been wanting you to on for a while. And you actually, this is the kind of guest we like. You reached out to me and we're like, I'm preaching this week. So, And you'll be preaching in the Big Apple, the city that never sleeps. Let me ask mm. you this. As someone who is right in the heart of you would be in the lower west side lee side, east low, side. lower east side okay not quite lower but yeah okay more or less as someone on that on the side, it's the city that never sleeps mm-hmm. how does that affect church attendance if people aren't sleeping huh well i guess maybe sunday is the one day they find a way to sleep or they're like still out partying but uh I don't know. Believe it or not, people come. I don't. I don't really know why. There's obviously way more fun and exciting things to do, but uh, they come, and uh, we love having them. And yeah, you, you, you got you have a, a church that's well attended in a tough place to get church attendance. Now tell in us, New York City terms in New York course. City, right? <laughs> tell us, is it smoke machines? Is it missional propaganda oh, yeah. and slides? And oh yeah, and are you like just like <laughs> is it hipster? paradise or like is it is it that kind of innovative practice that really packs them in i'd say if anything we're probably not very cool um we do have a projector so maybe that means we're trying but no we kind of own the the load of broad church episcopal flavor whatever you want to call that you got the so, prayer book the gospel the sacraments oh, yeah. and you're going at it yeah yeah they're all equal we love it we have a lot of fun so let's talk about the text that will be read in your at Calvary St. George's this this weekend. We got first Kings nineteen or no, sorry, rather second uh, first second Samuel rather. Sorry, second Samuel eighteen, five through nine. Ver- and then we have verse fifteen and thirty-one through thirty-three. Here's interesting in mean, the David cycle, and this is a, a a kind of darker time. We've David, you have like five chapters there where we're seeing David's life just kind of unravel and he's still dealing with the consequences of this kind of Adamic sin, right? Like, I mean, he he looks like a, a fallen Adam here, like seizing forbidden fruit, like the Bathsheba thing. Like he takes fruit that's not his, and you know, there after that, things never fully recover. And here he's had sons, uh, you know, like like Jacob, he loses control of his sons, <laughs> you know, or like like Adam also. There's a, there's frater, there's fratricide, right? There's there's kind of. Mm-hmm. Brotherly, it's interesting because it's all these Old Testament stories and the complexity of human sin and relationships and families and things like that seem to all kind of like play out in David's life. 
Yeah, no, I'd say I was thinking just looking at this text, this is I don't think you could make David David's life into a good movie, but maybe into a good like seven season TV show. And I feel like the art, the text we have today is like the end of season five, like when the show is at its peak, uh, emotional peak. It's got to have two more seasons to kind of wind down his life, but they'll never be as good. But here, the Absalon, Absalon. Uh, I mean, that's that's a season. That's a season finale for sure. Yeah, and you hear it's interesting too because you have this stra- this thing, you know, David. It's interesting too because David is this virile, powerful man of action. Like he doesn't, and and here he's much more passive. He has the sort of guys kind of fight his battle for him. And you kind of understand this on some level, because if he's killed in battle, the men will have to, what will they have left? They'll have to sort of go under Absalom. I mean, there might be some pragmatic political, sociopolitical things here, but it's just, he's not the man of his youth here. But then even still, he he, he asks that uh, that Absalom be dealt with you know, for kindly, you know, he, yeah. he, there's this sort of allusion to a kind of new Testament ethic, right? Like love, love of son who's an enemy. Mm. No, I think for sure that I think, I think for preachers for this text, if you're going to preach on it, you've got to like read and mention all the verses that are skipped. Cause it doesn't, I think just like the lectionary verses alone, at least in the Episcopal version, I think that's the same. It doesn't really talk about how uh, Joab's like, well, uh, no, let's let's murder the guy, even though you told me not to. And like, so the drama's heightened. And then just kind of what you said, like this radical love to the wayward son, um, even when the son has you know, tried to murder him, try to take over all of that. You and me. Yeah, it, yeah, it's interesting too because, like, Joe, these guys, his mighty men, so to speak, they don't think he's got what it takes to handle the situation anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, his judgment's clouded. Like, yeah. uh, you know, hey, he's this isn't our guy. Our guy was like a Tony Soprano. Like, he got to, he got <laughs> stuff done, and now he's softening up here. Yeah, although I've heard, uh, I don't put much stock in this, but one of the historical critical reconstructions is that uh, David actually was all in on this killing his son. But for, you know, for the public's view, for our view, he put on this front like, oh, I'm just so sad about this. I don't really do I find that pretty interesting. But yeah, no, I think you're more right. It's uh, our top dog. He's gone soft. So we've got to we've got to keep Israel together. Uh, but the beautiful thing in all of it, and I think what's preachable in all of it, is that uh, we see the man after God's own heart. And what does that mean? Is we see him in so many situations. But one area where we see it is when we are just so rebellious and mutinous, etc. Um, despite that, Christ is still like pining for us, uh, which I think is good news. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. I think that that is, there is this, and it's interesting too, that, that you see, interestingly, the ones who, who strive after the blessing are excluded, right? So these older sons, it's interesting, right? Judah is what Judah is Jacob's fourth son, right? Like, and he becomes the eldest. It's interesting because you could read the whole Joseph narrative, which is long as the redemption of Judah, right? Like Judah, Judah goes from conspiring to kill Joseph as being one who would lay down his life for Benjamin. And he looks like the true Judah, like Jesus there, right? And so here you have Solomon, who's not conspiring, the fourth son, and the kingdom falls in his lap. Like, it's so not Game of Thrones, right? Like, he's, he's not playing the Game of Thrones, right? He's like, he's, he's like, he's kind of like a, an aloof man of the North. And it, it's, it's interesting, right? Oftentimes, the God's, God's, the promise comes through passivity and reception. 
not through our own striving. Mm, I love it. I want to read to you something that's uh, like such interesting exegetical insight. So if someone's preaching this, it's an interesting way to contrast to Solomon, maybe. This is from my man, Peter Lehart, in his commentary, A Son to Me, Exposition of 1 and 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, Uh, (laughs) like 2 Corinthians. He has an interesting reflection on Absalom. Absalom was among those consumed by the forest. It's interesting because the forest for David is a good place. Like he he survives in the wilderness, right? But Absalom is one who's consumed by the forest. The, The text does not say Absalom was caught by the hair. A connection's implied. His hair was his glory and crown, but this glory led to his downfall. The emphasis on his head being caught brings out an analogy with others who died by head wounds. Absalom was a, was a satanic king and an anti-Nazarite, whose pseudo-dedicated head trapped him in the end. He was a Saul-eyed king, for Saul's head was removed. Further, Absalom was hanging between heaven and earth, and this indicates that he was comparable to Ahitophel, who died by strangling. Hanging in a tree, he was rejected by both heaven and earth. The royal mule, meanwhile, ran out from under him, a sign that he was losing control of the reins of the kingdom. According to Deuteronomy 21, 23, one hung on a tree is the curse of God. And Paul quoted this passage of Deuteronomy to explain the significance of the cross. Like Saul, Absalom's death was a type of the cross, pointing to the death of a king prince that would bring peace to the land and enable Israel to return from exile. David's kingdom was resurrected by the death of another Saul. So, uh, so Jesus is the new and better Absalom. Right. He's a, right. He's the sort of he's the one that dies a curse of death, but not through striving. Like he hmm. he dies fulfilling the promise of David, not trying to undo the Davidic kingdom, mm-hmm. but dies crushed in Jerusalem. Anticipates our gospel reading a little bit right there. My son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, dad. Come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said, not today. I got a lot to do. He said, that's okay. And they walked away, but his smile never dimmed and said, I'm going to be like him. Yeah, you know I'm going to be like him. Let's go on to Ephesians. Ephesians 4. Mm. This is full of of exhortations, full of... Paul's telling the, this... The, this church at Ephesus to put away falsehood, speak truth to neighbors. Don't be angry. Don't this famous passage. Everybody says this in marriage counseling, right? Don't let the sun go down in your anger. I think that's contextual. I think it's good for some couples. Some couples should just sleep on it. Sleep angry. Who knows? Uh, thieves must give up stealing. That's tough. <laughs> I mean, it's what I do. Like it's on my W two. I mean, come on. Uh, you got to work honestly, you know, you share with the needy, don't speak evil, all these, all these, you know, it seems like a heap of uh, to-do lists, Yeah, but it's interesting, you know, at the end, he says, he says, put away from all, put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And later he says, as Christ loves us and gave himself up for us, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So that's like, I feel like Paul here gives the key to Christian ethics, right? It always has to be, the imperatives always have to flow from the indicative. Mm -hmm. Which seems like the last three chapters of Ephesians do exactly that, like flow from the theology of the first three. uh, Yeah, yeah. On some way. And like, I don't know, on, on some level, like I read, texts like this and sometimes i wonder like is this just like a just a smorgasbord of just 
to-do lists or, 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 you know, morality, but I don't know if this, this works for all of them, but it seems like, uh, all of these imperatives have to do with strengthening the community or the unity, um, and the unity of the church as the basis for, for moral behavior that kind of flows out of, uh, us imitating God flows out of how much he's loved us, which is really unpacked, I think, in those first three chapters. What do you think? No, I think that's totally true. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I had this guy on, um, Professor Mattis, from, he's a Lutheran, who wrote this great book on Luther's Theology of Beauty, and, and just amazing. And, and this sort of, the sense that Luther thought that, you know, when you see the real beauty of the cross, then you're free to, to really see beauty in the world. As a, it's just sort of like his mm. ethics, like when you realize you don't, the, your works aren't for God, they're for your neighbor, then you can really love your neighbor, because if you're doing good thinking about how you're securing your own sort of spiritual legacy or something, then you're never really thinking about your neighbor. You're thinking about yourself. And same thing with this view of beauty that like, if you're using beauty to be an aesthete and sort of be sophisticated and show like, you know, theology of glory, you never really can appreciate beauty on its own terms. And I, I think that there's just this kind of sense in which like the significance of theological aesthetics, you, you, that the key to wholeness isn't kind of, ref it's like Eugene Peterson says, like discipleship is focusing more and more on Christ's righteousness and less and less on your own. That when Paul's saying like, why aren't we living this? What you, you've missed the beauty of Christ. You've missed, it's this, it's this Les Miserables moment, right? Where hmm. Jean Valjean, you say, I'm very angry with you, Jean. I told you to take the silverware as well. That, that, this picture of the profligate love for one that doesn't deserve it, is the inspiration puts him on a journey and it's a journey. I mean, it's one step forward, two steps back sometimes for Jean Valjean, but, but it sets him on a journey of gratitude for the grace that's been shown him. And I think that that's, you could say the whole Christian life is just grace and gratitude. Hmm. Yeah. I kind of wonder if like uh, agreeing with and, and expanding upon your idea of not seeing the beauty is also just at times like we just know too much. Um, Whereas, or we think we know a whole lot, and sometimes we just got to be told to stop and look at the cross, which I think also, <laughs> I'm really trying to anticipate our gospel reading hard. I think it gets to that. If you're the type of preacher who likes to connect them, it's which normally I'm not, but sometimes I do. It's maybe that's what you'll decide. You know, it's like, I, I was thinking about what you're saying about like the, the whole like, what we think we know it's indigo girls man the hardest to learn is the, is the least complicated right it's not complicated it can just be really hard because there's so much of us that thinks that that our, that our own sort of spiritual journey should be something that's got all these complicated and ornate and things in the tool belt to, and now there's not a place for deep reflection and things like that but but yeah i think the transformative stuff comes from you know the, the, you never graduate from the cross <laughs> Speaking of the cross, let's go to the gospel reading. John nice. 6, 35, verses 41 through 51. It takes all the good predestinarian stuff out. It's it's this is like the non-Calvinist version of, of the Bible. Like, all right, all right, you know, so, <laughs> there's a little Calvinist excursus there that uh, gets cut out. I don't know why. It's it's the uh, I saw this book somebody posted called the it's something like the Anti-Arminians or something. It's this study of 
British Calvinist Anglicanism or something, and it's like one hundred and eighty dollars. <laughs> the Kindle version. Wow. You can't. Yeah, you can't even get it. Yeah, book books. I won't be buying. Fair enough. So this is Jesus says, "I'm the bread of life." Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty, to which everyone responds, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. No, they, they don't like it, right? Here they, we, we hear, you know, they, they begin complaining. They're not down with the message. I mean, it's interesting. Initially, yeah. in these previous verses, it seems like they're confusing Jesus and Moses, right? Like he's saying, you know, no, I'm going to give you something better than man. I'm going to give you something, you know, th- th- there, there's this sense in which... The bread I'm offering will you'll be filled regardless of circumstance, right? It's an eternal filling. But they're kind of this is this Johannine sort of you don't see what's right in front of your face, right? Mm. Yeah, and I think I mean maybe going back to like that like knowing too much or or I forget how you said it, but because uh, he says I am the bread of life, and they say they put in his mouth first, come from heaven. Um, and that must have been a scandal to them because they're like, well, we know your parents. Um, yeah, you, you're not that big a deal. You're, and then they, you know, they, they've come follow him because of this, the feeding of the 5,000. And now just like the Israelites in the wilderness, they're grumbling. Um, and I think that he just has to, he stops them um, because they just don't understand. Like you said, they don't see what's right in front of them. Um, and then, yeah, then there's like this break, it seems like in the text. And then this whole thing about, you know, I desire you to come unto me. No one can come unto me unless the Father draws them. So there's a little bit of that that Calvinist uh, flavor you love. Um, and I think that I know, there is, right? But no one can do it on their own. Uh, so, yeah. And I think, I mean, if I was going to focus on that, I would definitely focus on, I mean, sure, that's an enigma. That's a really tough one when you're like, well, what about the people who don't believe? Or what about the people who aren't drawn? But yeah, I think this is kind of like where, you know, the articles, the prayer book are pretty good. And it's it's actually more comfort or to, to really rely on the comfort of this rather than to try to iron this out and that it's just that when you're worried about if you believe or how much you believe or do I even believe anymore, um, you can kind of take rest in that notion of that the Father is the one who draws us. Um, that, that, that word can be translated dragged, too, which I kind of like. Um, and yeah, and then it just kind of jumps into he says, yeah, I'm the bread of life. I'm from heaven. Uh, and this bread is my flesh and my body. And that's obviously where I'm going to take this, um, that we've, what is it? Three weeks now we've been talking about the bread of life. I'm ready for it to be over already. We've got one more week to go, but here he's making it clear that my body is my flesh. And while I do think that this refers to the Eucharist or to Holy Communion, I think the first and primary referent really is the cross here. Uh, my body given for the life of the world. Um, and this is what you can't understand. This is what the people who are around him and the way John puts it, right, the Jews, this is where they kind of know too much. Uh, they, don't, they don't get it. Uh, they, they can't see past what they think they know. Um, I don't know. But yeah, what do you think about all that? Yeah, I've heard Tim Keller say before, there's like, you read the Bible two ways. It's either all about Jesus or all about you. Mm. And I, it, there is some of that here, right? Like there's this sense in which it's going to be all about the climax of Christ, you know, the Christ event, God giving himself to us, or it's going to be sort of our own interpretive or hermeneutical or, our, you know, actually, you know, it's interesting. My favorite commentary, like any of any book is this by um, Dale Bruner. 
he has it's his the Matthew one? No, one on John. Um, huh? and it's interesting because he says this here on this passage where this whole kind of defense, you know, where Jesus says, stop your grumbling. His translation, Jesus responded to them and said, stop your grumbling back and forth. No one can ever come to me unless the father who sent me should first draw that person to me and I will raise that person up on the last day. This sentence can be heard with a predestinarian harshness as if Jesus is saying, shut up. If you're in, you're in. If you're out, you're out. <laughs> but what immediately follows softens this at first shocking response of Jesus considerably. Though Jesus is not asked this critical question of his humanity directly in our story, he apparently heard the question from someone and so now replies to his questioners directly and strongly. Rather than defend his own providence, where he comes from, Jesus teaches his father's providence, God's sovereignty, as if to say, where, where I come from, whose son I really am, will be proved in due course to whomever God pleases. Then for a second time, in quite close succession, we learn Jesus' deep conviction again that coming to him, which is the simplest possible description of the way human beings come to life, verse 35, is a coming that originally comes from the father. Every single individual whom the father is giving me will come to me, verse 37. In our Present verse 44, we have the same regal truth taught earlier in verse 37, but now put in the negative to impress the truth from another side. No one can ever come to me unless the Father who sent me should first draw that person to me. So he says, what the sovereignty responsibility interlude in verses 36 through 40 taught in principle, our grumblers and Jesus dialogue now teaches in person. And they said that Jesus answers their how question, not defensively, by explaining how he came down from heaven, but confidently, even offensively, by asserting that the Father will bring whomever he wants to a conviction of his heaven-sentness. In the Father's own time and way, Jesus does not defend himself by apologetics, defending his transcendence in order to get people to believe him. He asserts his confidence that no one can ever believe him at all unless his Father first draws the person to himself. Jesus believes God, not argument, brings persons to him, and he confidently says so. The church and the individual Christian within her Eager to win, men and women to faith can learn from Jesus' present calm confidence and response. We are sometimes too eager to convert as if our only defense of God will win the day, as if only our defense of God will win the day and the person. There is a God and he can defend himself. I'm going to find that one. I I don't have that one. It is fantastic. And he does a lot of great critical work. He he quotes the thought. He does a lot of historical work. He does great translations. But I I think that's a beautiful, it's sort of like Jesus rejects the premise of the question. (laughs) Mm. Like I reject the premise of your question. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue on your grounds. Like this isn't, Mm. and I think that like, I mean, there's a kind of bold humility or humble boldness that I think is ought to sort of characterize our own proclamation. Yeah. I guess there's like kind of an astonishment to it, right? He says, I am the bread from heaven who will give life to the world and it's astonishingly by dying for it. Yeah. Uh, it's not how you would expect him to do it. It's not how they expected him to do it. Um, it's interesting, too, because you think of like the Enuma Elish, like the Babylonian creation story where out of, you know, Marduk, you know, and I guess Kangu and Tiamat or whatever, there's this big battle and their entrails of, of um, uh, you know, Mar- the, the entrails of somebody like create the world and so create human beings in the world. And so, you know, the the gods make kings and priests to sort of feed the gods to sort of bring the goods of the earth to the gods right so only certain people are made in the image of god right the kings and the priests to which you have genesis like you know god sort of gets his hands in the dirt like the world's not 
the product of chaos, but of love. And everybody has the image of God. And ultimately, rather than have human beings sort of created as slaves to feed the gods, that creator God becomes the God who becomes food for human beings. Mm. So it's like the great reversal. Mm. Love it. God so, is, as Karl Barth says, God is no higher than in his humility. Mm. So listen to that sermon, take that bread and wine, get fed by this bread from heaven who gives life to the world. And then if you're in the city that never sleeps, take a nap. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> ben, thanks for doing this with me, my friend, and best of luck in your preaching Sunday. Thank you so much. It was so fun. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Ben for coming on the podcast, and thanks again to you for listening. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.